Our Father, as, as we look around the world, we see so much turmoil and so much chaos. And on the surface, Lord, it can so easily feel like this world is just spinning out of control. But Lord, your word tells us that you are in control, that you are sovereign over everything that takes place, that you are in charge. We pray, Lord, that through the power of your Holy Spirit within us, that we would have ears to hear and eyes to see this central truth in our passage today, that you are sovereignly in charge and that we would trust in you all the more as we see how true that is. In Christ's name we pray. Amen. So if you have one of our Bibles um, that you can get out in the foyer, uh, you'll want to turn to page 798. 798 and 799 are the two pages that uh, we'll be studying today. Uh, Otherwise, I would invite you to turn in your Bibles to the 12th chapter of the book of Zechariah. The 12th chapter of the book of Zechariah. Zechariah is the second book from the end of the Old Testament. And as you can see, when you get there, uh, we are three chapters away from the end of this book, which means that uh, in three weeks, uh, we will be done. So there's going to be a one-week buffer between the end of this study and the beginning of our Genesis study, because I just wanted to start it the first week of June, just just because. So we'll do something, uh, something fun and interesting um, in that one week, the last week of, uh, of uh, May. Um, as you're turning to the book of Zechariah. You might also want to keep Romans chapter 11 in mind. You might want to keep one finger in Romans 11 and one finger in Zechariah chapter 12 as Romans 11 is going to be of immense help uh, to us in understanding the message of Zechariah chapter 12. The book of Zechariah has given us a view of God that magnifies his faithfulness to his promises. Every book of the Bible is about God, but as you'll see as you go through the scriptures, each book will magnify different things about God for us. And the book of Zechariah has magnified his faithfulness to his promises. That's what we've been shown again and again through the words of Zechariah throughout this study. God is in charge and God is faithful to his promises. You might say he's faithful toward his people too, right? He is faithful toward his people. And um, yeah, we, we like that. It would be easy for us to just stop right there and say, okay, he's faithful to his people, but we don't really understand why. And so what I want to do um, if, if you don't mind is take you, take your thinking a step further and ask the question, why is God faithful to his people? It's possible to see salvation as something that is all about us, as something that is all about man. God loved us, so he saved us. Why did he save us? Because he loves us. So we, we have a, a tendency, there's, there, there's one way of thinking that says salvation is all about me. Salvation is all about us. But the Bible paints a slightly different picture. The Bible teaches us that God is faithful to his people because he is faithful to his purposes. He's faithful to his people because he's faithful to his purposes, That's what we saw a couple weeks ago when we looked at Ephesians chapter 1, verses 3 to 6, which tells us that God has blessed us in Christ with every spiritual blessing in the heavenly places, even as he chose us in him before the foundation of the world, that we should be holy and blameless before him. In love, he predestined us for adoption as sons through Jesus Christ, according to the purpose of his will to the praise of his glorious grace with which he has blessed us in the beloved. 
What an amazing and, and profound truth. God is faithful to us. God is faithful to his people because he's faithful to his own eternal purposes. Or Romans 8.28, which tells us that God is causing all things to work for the good of those who love him and are called according to whose purposes? His purposes. Called according to his purposes. Last week, we looked at what many scholars and commentators say is one of the most difficult chapters in Scripture, Zechariah chapter 11. I didn't find it that difficult personally, uh, so I hope that I presented it in a way that was easy for you to understand and follow along with as well. One of the issues that I think trips people up is, first of all, the three shepherds. The fact that Zechariah destroys the, the three shepherds. Uh, we, we don't know exactly what that means. And commentators like to know what everything means. And it just doesn't tell us exactly what it means, although we can make an educated guess as we did last week. Uh, we, we guess that it's probably prophet, priest, and king. Um, and I think another one of the issues that, tra- that trips people up is... The fact that God foretold of the day when he would annul the Mosaic covenant, the old covenant, if you will. And yet we know that a new covenant has been ushered in. The old covenant was law. The new covenant is grace. It was made by the shed blood of Christ on Calvary. And you can't have both. You can't have both. The old covenant was annulled to make way for the new. And the law only brings death. Listen, just, just listen to what Paul says in Romans chapter 4, verses 13 to 15. He's talking about the law. He says, The promise to Abraham and his offspring that he would be heir of the world did not come through the law, but through the righteousness of faith. For if it is the adherents of the law who are heirs, faith is null, and the promise, that is the, the promise that God made to Abraham, is void, for the law brings wrath. Salvation only came through the fulfillment of the law, and nobody except Jesus fulfilled it. Everybody else has fallen short. And so the law only brings God's wrath. So what a blessing to have a covenant that only brings death annulled. The question that arises after going through a chapter like Zechariah chapter 11 is the same question that Paul seeks to address in Romans chapter 11. It kind of starts back in chapter 9, but it really uh, starts off guns blazing, Romans chapter 11 verse 1, uh, asking the question that Zechariah 11 would force us to ask. Paul writes, I ask then, has God rejected his people? Good question. After you read Zechariah 11, has God rejected his people? Now, Paul isn't talking about God's people in general. He's specifically talking about Israel. He's specifically talking about the Jews. How do we know that? Because of how Paul answers that question. In the second half of Romans 11.1, he says, I ask then, has God rejected his people? By no means, for I myself am an Israelite, a descendant of Abraham, a member of the tribe of Benjamin. So the fact that Paul has this lineage going into Benjamin proves that God is not done with his people. So we know that people is referring to Israel. So why does Paul bring up the fact that he's an Israelite with roots in Benjamin? Because the fact that God chose him, chose Paul, is proof that God is not completely done with Israel. But let's consider for a moment... In light of this truth, let's consider what the Jews of Zechariah's day must have been thinking after they heard Zechariah chapter 11. I mean, they've just been told that when the good shepherd, when when the Messiah, when Jesus is going to come, their own leaders are going to reject him. All the people are going to reject him. And as a result, he will annul the Mosaic Covenant but not before he fulfilled it. How do you think they were feeling when they heard that? One of the accusations that Jesus threw at the Jewish 
leaders of his day came in Matthew 23 when he said, Oh, Jerusalem, Jerusalem, the city that kills the prophets and stones those who are sent to it. How often would I have gathered your children together as a hen gathers her brood under her wings, and you were not willing. And sadly, Zechariah was one of those prophets being described there. He was one of the prophets that the Jews murdered. John MacArthur notes that, quote, instead of hearing the word of the Lord that came through Zechariah, they eventually murdered Zechariah and continued even after the restoration on their apostate journey all the way to the arrival of Messiah, whom they rejected, and beyond that through human history until now. End quote. But is God done with Israel? That's the question that the Jews must have been thinking, must have been asking after reading the prophetic words of Zechariah chapter 11. Chapter 12 is actually going to address that very question. So without any further delay, let's look at what God has to say as we continue. Just look at verse 1, Zechariah chapter 12, verse 1. It says, The oracle of the word of the Lord concerning Israel. Thus declares the Lord, who stretched out the heavens and founded the earth and formed the spirit of man within him. And let's just stop there for a second. Because this is the second time that we've seen the phrase, the oracle of the Lord. We saw it also back at the beginning of chapter 9. This is a new oracle then. This is a totally separate oracle. This isn't... uh, connected per se, although there is a connection between uh, the previous oracle and this one. Um, and this is the, uh, the, the final section of the book that we are now entering into. The previous oracle in chapters 9 to 11 dealt specifically with the coming of the Messiah the first time. But he will be back. He will return. He has work on earth that has yet to be completed. And as I've said before, people have a lot of ideas about what it's going to be like, what's going to happen when Christ returns, when he's going to return, how he's going to return, all those things. And I just say, we're going to figure it all out together when it happens. (laughs) The word oracle means burden. It means burden burden. It means to to bear or lift up something that's heavy. And so the idea here is that this is very heavy material, which relates specifically to the Jews, specifically to Israel. But before God addresses the future of Israel, he gives us something of a a praise, something of of a doxology, a declaration of God's greatness, a declaration of God's glory, a declaration of God's sovereignty. He reminds us that he has done three things. He stretched out the heavens, he founded the earth, right? And he formed the spirit of man within him. This is a reminder that the earth is the Lord's, all of creation is the Lord's. He is sovereign over it all because he made it all and he sustains it all. In fact, uh, that's made evident by the fact that in, in the Hebrew language, all three of these verbs are present tense particles. In other words, it's, it's saying God still stretches out the heavens. God still holds the earth in his hands. He still forms the, man, the spirit of man within him. And God continuously sustains all of these things through the power of his spirit in accordance with his purposes. Now, why would God preface a chapter, a a prophetic oracle, a prophetic passage with a reminder like this? It's because the foundation for what God is doing is going to do, the foundation for what God has called and continues to call his people to be, his people to do, is built on the reality of God's sovereign, eternal, unshakable, unthwartable purposes. We exist for God's glory. We exist for God's glory. We are effectually called for God's glory. We are redeemed for God's glory in accordance with his eternal sovereign purposes. The reality is that you and I are accountable to God because he made us. 
Every single one of us is accountable to him because he's the one who's formed our spirits within us. He's the one who gives us life. He's the one who sustains our lives. And none can question him or thwart his purposes. For who has understood the mind of the Lord so as to instruct him? In the words of the prophet Isaiah, who has measured the spirit of the Lord? Or what man shows him counsel? That's why this section is prefaced this way. It's to remind us of exactly who God is, what he's done, and what he continues to do, what he's capable of doing. The point is, as we'll see, if God is capable of doing all these things, we can have assurance of something else that's very, very important. He is capable of saving his people, both in a spiritual and in a physical sense. So he continues in verse 2, verses 2 to 4. God says, Behold, I am about to make Jerusalem a cup of staggering to all the surrounding peoples. The siege of Jerusalem will also be against Judah. On that day, I will make Jerusalem a heavy stone for all the peoples. All who lift it will surely hurt themselves, and all the nations of the earth will gather against it. On that day, declares the Lord, I will strike every horse with panic and its rider with madness. But for the sake of the house of Judah, I will keep my eyes open when I strike every horse of the peoples with blindness." Now, as, as we go through this passage that we just read and, and the rest of this chapter, there are two things that are going to strike you, and they, they struck me anyway. First, we're going to see the words on that day a lot in this particular oracle. We're going to see those words on that day uh, a lot. We'll see it a total of seven times in this chapter, eight if you include chapter 13, verse 1, which we're also going to be covering today, and we're going to see it several more times in the chapters to come. So, on that day would say, yeah, this is happening in the future. So, so that catches my attention, that he says that a lot. There's a lot of repetition with that. The second thing that catches my attention, especially, you know, verses 2 to 4, but throughout this chapter, is how much control is ascribed to God here. How many times does God tell us what man's going to do just in these three verses? Zero. How many times do we see what God is going to do? A lot. He says, I'm about to make Jerusalem, Jerusalem a cup of staggering. I will make Jerusalem a heavy stone. I will strike every horse with panic. I will keep my eyes open when I strike every horse of the peoples with blindness. I, 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 I. This is all the Lord's doing. God is the one who is in control here. And we can't miss that fact if we're paying close attention to the text. And that's very important. This is God's work. God's the one who will do this. And God gives us two images to describe what's going to happen. First, he says he will make Jerusalem a cup of staggering. To whom? To the surrounding peoples, he says. When? On that day. <laughs> In the future sometime. We don't know when. What we do know is that this, like other events in this chapter, hasn't happened yet. Does that mean that it's not going to happen? Absolutely not. Because God is faithful to his promises, because God is faithful to his purposes. When we're talking about God, if something hasn't happened yet, and he's promised to do it, if, and he, it hasn't happened yet, it just means it hasn't happened yet. It's going to happen. And you might be wondering what it means for Jerusalem to be a cup of staggering. The wording there is kind of weird, isn't it? A cup of staggering. Uh, that's not the way that we would probably articulate in, in normal conversation. But the essence of what God is saying is that at some point in the future, Jerusalem will be besieged. And God is going to see to it that doing so renders his enemies so confused and so powerless, they'll be like a person who's so drunk that they can't walk straight. All they can do is stagger. That's the first image that God gives us here, that he's going to make Jerusalem a cup of staggering. 
Now, some people will try to allegorize this away. We have to be very careful with, with allegory. Some people will say, well, when he's talking about Jerusalem, he's talking about the church. Except that's not what he's been referring to throughout this whole book when he's been referring to Jerusalem. The people returned to Jerusalem. I mean, it's, it's a literal place. So it doesn't give us room to allegorize here. This is talking about literal Jerusalem. Now, of course, these truths are, uh, are, are applicable to the church as well. This is, the, this is the way God deals with his people. He does provide for his people. He does protect his people. But this is speaking specifically of literal Jerusalem. He says, there'll be a cup of staggering. That's the first thing. The second image that God gives us is in verse 3, where God says that he will make Jerusalem a heavy stone for all the peoples, and all who try to lift it will surely hurt themselves. The nations on that day that attack Jerusalem will be like some little person who's never worked out before going into a gym and trying to bench press 400 pounds. Now, 400 pounds is a lot of weight, and if the most that a person can realistically expect to bench press is maybe 140, 150 pounds, it doesn't take a whole lot of guesswork to figure out what's going to happen if they put 400 pounds on the bars and try to lift it. It's not going to happen. <laughs> if, they, if they, by chance, can, can get it off the, the rack... Uh, that 400 pounds is going to fall on them and crush them. And if you've ever bench pressed before, you know what that's like when your arms just give out. If your arms give out when you're bench pressing, you're not going to get that weight back up. It's, it's there. You're going to get crushed by it once your arms give way because it's too heavy. You're, you're not going to lift it off of yourself. You're at the mercy of what, what we would call the spotter. You're at the mercy of the person who's there to help you, who's there to ensure that this kind of thing doesn't happen. But God says this is what's going to happen to anyone and everyone who tries to besiege Jerusalem on that day. Now, who would try such a thing? Who's going to do this? Who's going to come in on Jerusalem? All the nations on earth is what God says. All the nations of the earth. Now you might hear a lot of well-meaning, well-intentioned people say, you know, we want to be on Jerusalem's side that day. There's a slogan that you'll hear from Christians who I have no doubt mean well. They'll say, I stand with Israel And I would say, no, that is wrong. That is wrong. Right now, they are an apostate nation. It's backwards to say, we stand with Israel. We want to be on God's side. That's the side we want to be on. We want to stand with God. And we stand with anyone else who is on God's side. At this point in history, Israel is not yet back on God's side. As we'll see, they aren't yet on God's side, but they will be. But we want to be on God's side, first and foremost. And when this attack on Jerusalem happens, God tells us how he'll confuse his enemies. He'll cause their horses to panic as they suddenly go blind. And the riders of these horses will lose control of themselves. They'll go mad. They'll go crazy. Now, how does this translate to the modern world? You know, is this an allegory for something? Is this symbolic of something? What what exactly would this look like for God in today's world to blind the horses and cause their riders to lose their minds? I I don't know. I don't know. I'll just say that if you read 10 commentators, they will probably have 10 different ideas on exactly what that means. What we do know for sure, and this is what we want to focus on, what we do know for sure is that God's purposes can never be thwarted, but man's purposes can be, and they will be. Look at the contrast in verse 4. The horses go blind, but what's the contrast? What's God going to be doing? He says, I'll have my eyes open. He'll be watching. He'll be paying attention. He'll be completely aware while the horses are unaware of what's going on. Look at verses 5 to 9. The scenario continues. 
Then the clans of Judah shall say to themselves, The inhabitants of Jerusalem have strength through the Lord of hosts their God. On that day I will make the clans of Judah like a blazing pot in the midst of wood, like a flaming torch among sheaves, and they shall devour to the right and to the left all the surrounding peoples, while Jerusalem shall again be inhabited in its place in Jerusalem. And the Lord will give salvation to the tents of Judah first, that the glory of the house of David and the glory of the inhabitants of Jerusalem may not surpass that of Judah. On that day, the Lord will protect the inhabitants of Jerusalem, so that the feeblest among them on that day shall be like David, and the house of David shall be like God, like the angel of the Lord going before them. And on that day, I will seek to destroy all the nations that come against Jerusalem." It seems likely that prior to this day that's being described, the leaders and, uh, and the people in the surrounding area of Judah will be among those who are standing against Jerusalem. They'll be opposed to Jerusalem. And yet, and yet when they see the nations appear to basically self-destruct, as they seek to attack Jerusalem, they will know that God is the one defending them. That's how amazing it's going to be. That's how widespread it's going to be. They're going to say there's, there's no other natural explanation. It's got to be God working through them, empowering them. They will know that God is the one who's defending them. They'll realize that the inhabitants of Jerusalem are operating by the power of the Lord. And why is that? Is it because the people of Jerusalem will have turned back to the Lord already? Is it because they'll, they'll acknowledge and receive Jesus as their Messiah? No. No, that hasn't happened yet. That's going to happen later in the chapter, but at this point, it hasn't even happened yet. There's been no spiritual revival among the people up to this point. Last chapter... We're going to see apostasy. We're going to see a falling away. They're following bad shepherds. This chapter, there's this attack. There's no place in here that mentions anything about a turning back to God. But it is going to happen later in the chapter. This is the sovereign mercy of God. Giving mercy to whom he will show mercy, just like he told Moses he would. This is the power of God working through these people who have rejected him for millennia by and large. God isn't working to save them in accordance with their will, but in spite of their resistance toward him. And it'll be evident to those Jews outside of Jerusalem that God is with them. And what's going to happen? Look at verse 6. God says, I will make the clans of Judah like a blazing pot in the midst of wood, like a flaming torch among sheaves, and they shall devour to the right and to the left all the surrounding peoples, while Jerusalem shall again be inhibited in its place, inhabited in its place in Jerusalem. Who will make the clans of Judah like a boiling pot, like a blazing pot? God will. They won't make themselves into fierce warriors, but the power of God within them will. In verses 7 to 9, God promises to bring salvation to the tents of Judah, causing even the weakest, even the most feeble, peaceful, pacifistic citizens of Jerusalem to fight with the ferocity, the boldness, and the courage of David. And of course, David's famous for going up against Goliath when nobody else in the nation would, right? And he's saying, even the weakest person in Jerusalem is going to have that kind of bravery on that day. It says, the house of David shall be like God, like the angel of the Lord. Oh, look at that connection. The house of David shall be like God, like the angel of the Lord going, out, uh, going before them. And I know that we've covered this over and over again, but who is the angel of the Lord? It tells us in black and white language here. Who is the angel of the Lord that we see throughout the Old Testament? It is Christ. It is Christ prior to the incarnation. He was the one 
who had led Israel to victory so many times in the past. Perhaps the most impressive victory that Christ led Israel to is found in Isaiah chapter 37. In Isaiah chapter 37, verse 36, we read this. And the angel of the Lord went out and struck down 185,000 in the camp of the Assyrians. And when people arose early in the morning, behold, these were all dead bodies. The angel of the Lord goes out before them and slays 185,000 enemies, Assyrians. He's the one who secures the victory. And Zechariah says, on that day, the house of David will be like that. This passage reminds us that God's purposes cannot be thwarted. But it reminds us of another truth, that he is faithful to his purposes. And for that reason, he's faithful to uphold his promises. God has promised that this will happen. It hasn't happened yet, but we would be foolish to think that it won't happen because he said this will happen. Now, up until this point, we've seen that God will save Jerusalem physically. But as we continue, we'll see that he will also save his people spiritually. Look at verse 10. Verse 10 says, And I will pour out on the house of David and the inhabitants of Jerusalem a spirit of grace and pleas for mercy, so that when they look on me, on him whom they have pierced, they shall mourn for him as one mourns for an only child and weep bitterly over him as one weeps over a firstborn. Who's the one speaking here? This is God speaking, right? God is the one speaking here. And whom does he identify himself to be? This is Jesus speaking. This is one of the reasons that I'm not too crazy about red letter Bibles. Because when you read Jesus talking in the Old Testament, those letters usually aren't read. But he identifies himself right here. The one who will be pierced is the second person of the Trinity, Jesus Christ. And he's the one talking here. But let's not get ahead of ourselves. How are they going to look on him whom they have pierced? Well, he says Christ will pour out on the house of David and the inhabitants of Jerusalem a spirit of grace, causing them to beg for mercy, causing pleas for mercy to come from their lips. They're going to repent. That's what he's describing here. They're going to repent. God is going to open their eyes to behold the glorious splendor, the majesty of Christ. Now, some believe that this is describing the second coming, and this is saying that they will physically see Christ. That's certainly possible, but the text does not say that. So, we can think that, and I, I kind of lean toward that direction, but it's not, at least it's not mentioned uh, specifically here, but it's possible. But we know that physically seeing Christ has never saved anyone. Physically seeing Christ did nothing to convince the Jews of the first century. They beheld Christ with their physical eyes, and yet the eyes of their hearts were shut tight. So while it's possible that this happens at the second coming and thus that they see him physically, that would do nothing to change them, to change their hearts if they did not also see him with the eyes of their hearts. Now on this day, you might ask, what, what took you guys so long? Why did it take so long for them to receive the Messiah, to repent and just believe in him for the same reason that anyone has ever rejected Christ. Why didn't they reject him? Or why didn't they accept him the first time? Why did they reject him when he was on earth 2,000 years ago? For the same reason that the Gentiles to this day and everybody to this day rejects him. Paul writes, if our gospel is veiled, it is veiled to those who are perishing. In their case, the God of this world has blinded the minds of the unbelievers to keep them from seeing the light of the gospel of the glory of Christ, who is the image of God. 
It's from 2 Corinthians chapter 4, verses 3 and 4. Notice that Paul doesn't make a distinction there between Jew and Gentile. He's talking about all unbelievers, everybody who has ever rejected Christ. This is what it can all be boiled down to. So do you see this? They must see him with the eyes of their heart, not with their physical eyes. They must see him with the eyes of their heart, but the God of this world, the devil, has prevented them from seeing the glory of Christ and has kept them blinded for so long. How will that be broken? How will the blindness be broken? The same way that blindness has ever been broken for anyone. Paul continues in verse 6 of 2 Corinthians chapter 4. He writes that God who said, let light shine out of darkness, has shown in our hearts to give the light of the knowledge of the glory of God in the face of Jesus Christ. God will be the one to open the eyes of their hearts, to see the one whom they have pierced, to see with the eyes of their hearts the Lord Jesus Christ in all of his glory and splendor. And when they do, when they do see him with the eyes of their hearts, they will weep and they will mourn and they will repent in brokenness over the fact that their people have rejected him for so long. God continues to describe this mourning. Zechariah chapter 12, verses 11 to 14. He says, on that day, the mourning in Jerusalem will be as great as the mourning for Hadad Rimon in the plain of Megiddo. The day that the land shall mourn each family by itself, the family of the house of David by itself and their wives by themselves, the family of the house of Nathan by itself and their wives by themselves, the, the family of the house of Levi by itself and their wives by themselves, the family of the Shimeites by itself and their wives by themselves and all the families that are left, each by itself and their wives by themselves. Israel has never seen this happen. Israel has never in history seen this happen, where each individual, this is talking about every individual, repents. As we saw in Judges, there were times where God would rise up a godly leader and there would be some repentance, but there would be evidence that not everybody repented. But this is different. Everybody, everybody in Jerusalem will repent that day. Paul says that godly grief produces a repentance that leads to salvation without regret. 2 Corinthians chapter 7, verse 10. And that's exactly the type of repentance that God is describing here through Zechariah. So now, why you, now you see why I say this has got to happen in the future. It's, it's just, it's never happened before in all of history. And yet God is the one who causes this to happen. He has to be the one who will cause this to happen. It isn't something that Israel would ever do on their own initiative, ever. God must be the one to take the initiative to draw them to his son, to Christ. He must be the one to open the eyes of their hearts. He must grant them a spirit of repentance. He must pour out his grace. God must Initiate this. God must be the one who causes this to happen because it could not happen any other way. But this story isn't completely over. Remember that the verses and the chapters, those aren't part of the inspired text. Those are things that uh, are, are added by man to make it easier. And we appreciate the fact that most of the time it makes it easier. But the story isn't done. It actually ends in verse 1 of chapter 13. Let's look at that. Zechariah 13.1 says, On that day there shall be a fountain opened for the house of David and the inhabitants of Jerusalem to cleanse them from sin and uncleanness. There is only one fountain that can do this. There is only one fountain that can cleanse sin, that can take away uncleanness, and that is the shed blood of the Lord Jesus Christ. Israel will look upon him. They will repent in brokenness. They will place saving faith in him. And they will be cleansed from all sin and uncleanness. 
Let's turn to the 11th chapter of Romans as we close. The 11th chapter of Romans. We already covered a little bit. We saw how the chapter begins, the question that it's really addressing. As Paul reflected in the 11th chapter on the state of first century Israel and the future of Israel, what was his spirit? What was his attitude? Was he drawn to a point of despair as he kind of was in chapter 9? No, he's drawn to a spirit of hope. He's filled with hope as he reflects on the future of the Jews. He knew that God wasn't finished with Israel because Paul himself was a Benjaminite. He was a Jew. Look at what Paul says in verse 5, chapter 11, verse 5. He says, So too, at the present time, there is a remnant chosen by grace. That was describing first century Israel. But it describes modern-day Israel as well. Verses 6 to 7, Romans chapter 11, he writes, But if it is by grace, it is no longer on the basis of works. Otherwise, grace would no longer be grace. What then? Israel failed to obtain what it was seeking. What was Israel seeking? They were seeking justification by the law. They were seeking justification through the law. But the law only led to death, as Paul told us in Romans chapter 4. So Israel failed because nobody except Christ upheld the law. So the law never saved anybody. It had always been by grace alone, through faith alone. Israel will not be saved through the law. Nobody will ever be saved by the law. Israel, like everyone else, will be saved by the grace of God alone, through faith alone, in Christ alone, for the glory of God alone. So Paul continues, verse 7, saying, The elect obtained it, that is, salvation, but the rest were hardened. Verse 8, as it is written, God gave them a spirit of stupor, eyes that would not see and ears that would not hear, down to this very day. And we could tack on, and to this very day too. Look down at verse 25. Not that our words would be inspired though, right? Look down at verse 25. Paul continues talking about the future of Israel. He says, Lest you be wise in your own sight, I do not want you to be unaware of this mystery, brothers. A partial hardening has come upon Israel until the fullness of the Gentiles has come in. Verse 26, and in this way, all Israel will be saved. There has been a remnant chosen by grace through faith, but the rest of Israel remains hard-hearted toward God, but not forever but not forever, only until the fullness of the Gentiles has come in. Now, some people play some kind of hermeneutical hopscotch here, jumping around and concluding that this isn't literally talking about the nation of Israel, but that this is talking about the church. Those who hold such a view have been accused of affirming what's called replacement theology. You may have heard of that. I would issue a word of caution against using that term, however. I have read people on both sides. I've read books from people on both sides. I know the thesis. I know the antithesis. And I have yet to find one at least credible author who thinks <clears throat> that the church has replaced Israel. If anybody thinks that, I mean, th those people are so extremely out there that they, they basically don't get mentioned. The people accused of affirming so-called replacement theology believe that God has always had one people group, whether you want to call it Israel, or whether you want to call it the church, or the elect, or the redeemed, or the children of God, whatever you want to call it. He's always had one people, and that's what these people who affirm replacement theology say. I've read their books. I know their position. They don't believe that the church has replaced Israel. What they claim is the same thing that Paul is saying here, that the Gentiles have been grafted into Israel by God's doing. They haven't replaced Israel. So there are two reasons not to accuse someone of affirming replacement theology. Number one, it's, 
It's lacking in grace, number one. Let's be honest, the term is meant to be disparaging. And that is less than loving toward a fellow brother or sister in Christ. Nobody is going to miss out on heaven because their eschatology, you know, their, their view of the end times was off, or their ecclesiology, their, their view of uh, exactly what this means in relation to the church is wrong. Secondly, when you accuse someone of affirming replacement theology, again, that position is so extremely rare, it's almost non-existent. And so what it reveals is that there's a chance that you don't understand what the people are affirming. There's a chance. John Piper gets called a replacement theologian. That's not what he affirms. So how do we know that Paul is talking about literal Israel here? How do we know that Paul's talking about the Jews? Because there's a contrast between Jews and Gentiles being made here. It wouldn't make any sense to say that the church has had a partial hardening of heart while the Gentiles come in so that all the church can be saved. That that, that doesn't make any sense. Once you start applying a, a, a consistent hermeneutic here, it falls apart. Every time the Bible talks about Israel, it means literal Israel. And I know exactly where those who disagree with me go from here. They go to Romans 9, 6, where Paul says, For not all who were descended from Israel belong to Israel. But Paul was only making a distinction there between the nation of Israel as a whole and the remnant of Israel, the elect, the redeemed within Israel. Now, Paul says that all of Israel will be saved here in Romans eleven twenty six, Does that mean all of Israel from throughout the ages will be saved? No. No, that goes against everything that Scripture teaches us about salvation. We're talking about those who will be there on this day of nationwide revival, nationwide repentance, a nationwide turning of the hearts of every person in Israel to faith in Christ. They will not be saved because they're Jewish. They'll be saved because they place saving faith in him whom they have pierced. You might be asking at this point, why does any of this matter? Why why does any of this matter to a Gentile? You know, we're Gentiles. This is talking about Israel. Why, Why does this matter to us at all? Well, first of all, the word of God tells us that it's inspired and that it's profitable for teaching, reproof, correction, training, and righteousness. So everything that the Bible says is useful to us in some way, whether we're Jew or Gentile. But look at verse 29 of Romans 11. There's your answer. This is why it matters to us. This is why this is all important. This is what it's trying to show us. The reason that this matters is because God's promise to one day save Israel is proof that the gifts and the calling of God are irrevocable. They're irrevocable. Why? Because his purposes are irrevocable. Imagine if God had made a promise to save all of Israel one day and then changed his mind. How trustworthy would his promises be? Honestly. The reason that this is so great is that this day will be a day in which the faithfulness of God throughout the ages is put on full display for all to see. We're going to see that he is truly faithful to all of his promises. He is faithful to all of his people. He is faithful to all of his eternal purposes. They will not be thwarted. God is faithful to his people because he's faithful to his purposes. His sovereign and eternal plans will be fulfilled. And so I ask you today, I implore you to look upon the one who was pierced for your transgressions. Look upon the Savior, the Lord Jesus Christ. With the eyes of your heart, behold him the one who took the sin of all who would place saving faith in him upon himself and he bore the wrath of God against their sins. And thus is both the just and the justifier. Our sin was transferred, it was imputed to him. His righteousness in return was imputed to us. So come to him. 
Come to him and behold him in all of his glory. Repent in brokenness over your sin. Believe in him and receive cleansing from the one fountain that can wash away your sin. Let's pray. Our Father, we thank you for your faithfulness. We thank you for your greatness, for, your, for revealing your sovereignty over all of the nations, over everything that happens. We thank you for showing us throughout your word, Lord, that your purposes are just and that they cannot be thwarted. And so in humble reverence and humility, Lord, teach us, teach us to look forward to this day. Teach us to pray for this day to come. Until then, Lord, we pray that we would be faithful stewards of the message with which you have entrusted us, with the gospel message. Teach us to be a people who proclaim it, who live by it. We pray, Lord, for doors of opportunity to share the truth of the gospel with those who are perishing without it. That they may have the eyes of their hearts opened. We pray, Lord, for a fruitful harvest in this sense. Not for our own glory, but for your glory. That your name would be known. Father, we thank you for all the lessons that your word gives us. We pray, Lord, that you would teach us to surrender ourselves to you. To make you known. To make yourself known through us. That you would be glorified. In Christ's name. Take me deeper.